the most important thing is how do you co-sell and co-market with this new set of capabilities? How do you amplify your brand? How do you get to more places and have more conversations with customers than you've ever had in the past? Welcome to the Software Channel Partner Podcast, where you'll hear leaders of partner programs talk about their greatest challenges and most successful solutions. And now your host, Louis Gadima, the president of Revenue and Associates. Welcome to the Software Channel Partner Podcast, where we talk with leaders in software partner programs to learn about what's working today. I'm Louis Gadima, the president of Revenue and Associates, where we help companies grow faster by helping their channel partners grow faster. Today, I'm talking with Jay McBain, Principal Analyst for Global Channels at Forrester. Before Forrester, Jay was co-founder and CEO of Channelize, a SaaS channel tech company, SVP for Community and Channel Development at Autotask, Director of SMB in the Americas for Lenovo, and National Sales Manager for SMB for IBM Canada. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. Look forward to it. You've had quite a career, and obviously it's far from over, but I learned that maybe the most remarkable thing about you is that you have four children, and yet you've been able to travel to over 80 countries. I've got, uh, interesting, I've got four girls. Uh, Two of them are finishing college, and two of them are in diapers. (laughs) A little bit of a mix there, and uh, my younger daughter, you know, has been to 35 of those countries. So we travel wow. with the kids and uh, someday should probably write a book about that because it's a little bit challenging. That's that's amazing. She's already been to more countries than I have. I, I've been to 20 or 25. I thought I was doing pretty well, but uh, uh, nowhere close to 80. So let's cut to the chase in terms of partner programs. You talk to channel leaders all the time and you're doing research on results. What do you think it is that the best software partner programs are doing right? What what separates the leaders from the rest of the pack? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, we've seen probably more changes in partner programs in the last 18 months than we've seen in the last, I'd say, 37 years. Today, we've got 175,000 software companies. And I predicted a, 10 years from now, that'll be a million But there's probably around 30,000 of those that have set up some type of channel program uh, in terms of, you know, maturity level. There's probably 10,000 that I would say have dedicated people and and have built out the 90 parts of the program. But the big change and really where software companies, you know, fueling this growth, 10 years ago, we only had 10,000 software companies. So fueling the growth to 175,000 has really been the new buyer understanding where tech dollars are being spent, how they're being spent, and then those software companies being able to bring in the right kinds of partners, not just traditional IT type partners, but all of the different kinds of influencers that are out there in the marketplace today. So you're saying there's 175,000 software companies and that 30,000 have partner programs? That's uh, obviously not exact to the decimal point, but sure, um, sure, but roughly, yeah, we have a pretty wide aperture of that. And the great thing about my job is I get to speak with hundreds of these uh, companies per quarter, and I travel quite a bit to uh, probably fifty different 
shows per year. So I get to speak in front of even a wider audience than that. So yeah, that's uh, as far as I can tell the, um, the, the state of the nation in terms of size and uh, really interested in their programs themselves. And we'll get into much more detail about some of the winners out there and, and what they're doing. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I think uh, you have a, a statistic or a prediction that in six or seven years, well, already the World Trade Organization says 75% of all commerce is through channels. And you were predicting that in a few years, 90% of tech sales would be through the channel? Uh, actually, slightly different than that. Um, the actual transaction level revenue that goes through channels, uh, I believe, is going to decline. And Really? The actual participation in the channel in terms of guiding a customer through the first part of their journey, you know, that part that we talk about that uh, they research and inform themselves and in many cases get to vendor selection. It's the first 68% of the journey today. Almost looks like a consumer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the level of partners, you know, they're, they're inviting upwards of five different partners during that stage. There's obviously the transactional stage, but then... Every industry is going into a subscription as a service type of model, which means that the point of sale is just the start. You have to retain that customer and renew them you know, each month, each year, forever. And the amount of partners that are necessary you know, to be able to do that and drive good customer experience, all of those things are growing pretty significantly. But the actual transaction itself, just recently, you know, a lot of our surveys are telling us that the future buyer and the current buyer, the line of business executive who spends 65% of all tech dollars, 73% of them would actually prefer to buy more direct. And, you know, that may be direct to the manufacturer or OEM, but in many cases, it's going to flow into these massive marketplaces where they can buy the seven layers of the cake, the seven layers of the solution they need in one place, they can provision it, they can, you know, do the monitoring and measurement and management of that, you know, for example, cloud ecosystem within that marketplace, as opposed to going to Larry in the white van to have him or her do that transaction on their behalf. So that's an interesting change in terms of our thinking and, and how partners actually make money and how they add value to the customer. Yeah, well, I had been thinking that SaaS really made direct sales very, very possible, but was also seeing a lot of indirect sales of technology, of software. Like, you know, as you know, my first interview in this uh, series was with Rob Ray from Datto, and they're a 100% channel. Yep. You know, they, they sell totally through MSPs. But you're saying that less than a fifth of software companies are, are using partners at all. Uh, or have formal programs. You know, there might be alliances. There's obviously some level of connection from a technical point of view inside their ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So a, a traditional software company obviously has to have the um, connections with uh, other layers of the stack and the integrations necessary, you know, to, to survive. So that is, you know, kind of a rudimentary channel, but it's not really a sales and marketing channel as we would define it. Microsoft, I think 95% of their sales is through partners. 
So the, these uh, very large number of software companies that don't have uh, formal programs, do you think that they're missing out? Are they making a mistake or, or do they have it right? No, I think they're making a mistake. I spent a couple of days at Microsoft last week. The, the interesting thing is that number's dropping. So if you look at the press releases over the last year, Microsoft is starting to steer more of its Office 365 revenue to the marketplace. It's starting to steer the Microsoft 365 offering, the Dynamics offering, the Azure, obviously. All of those are starting to actually be repositioned, uh, depending on the market and the geography, as more direct relationships with the customer. But the need for partners has never been more at, at Microsoft. So they understand that you know, for example, in their partner program, they run the biggest channel in the world. They have 400,000 channel partners as part of the program, which are more of the traditional partners going back to the late 80s and early 90s to the big swing of, uh, of the world to uh, Wintel type of boxes. But they're actually bringing on 7,500 partners a month. If you can imagine the scale of being able to onboard 7,500 new partners a month. What's interesting, though, is I am guessing, and you know, based on some analysis, that 80% of those new partners that are coming on board are non-transacting. And we can get into detail what that means, but they are definitely partners in the program. They're definitely contributing to, to Microsoft revenue and helping fuel their growth. They're just not there at the point of collecting a credit card or collecting an invoice for the customer. That's a major nuance in terms of what they're doing. And we're seeing the same things at AWS and Google. We're seeing the same things at Salesforce and Marketo and NetSuite and Workday. And as we go down the list, there is a big move away from the traditional reseller and that transactional part of their role. So they're influencers, but they're not actually closing the deal? Yeah, so they're influencers, they're advocates, they're alliances. I mean, there are a number of different things, but you know, they're definitely involved in that first 68% of the journey with the customer. If you look at what the customer, for example, is reading, where they go and the people they're following to help them solve their problems or do the transformation that they're, that they're going through, partners are very much there. And then again, after the transaction, you look at the downstream opportunity the ability to install, implement, integrate, the ability to you know, secure that environment, make it compliant. If you're Rob Ray, to make it uh, business continuity long-term. These are all the very important pieces. And there's 17 more, by the way, tech services that are very rich in margin. And if you're a partner, why, why would you focus on that 20%, which might be the resell margin, and then have to get involved with collecting money and doing that piece of the business, when you could have resources deployed on those tech services, which today are somewhere between 40 and 75% margins. It's a win-win, win. It's a win for the customer. It's a win for the partner. It's a win for the vendor to streamline that transactional part of the business. Yeah. Well, I know that you've mentioned that at Salesforce, it's like $4 of revenue for partners for every dollar for Salesforce. Yeah, it's actually crazy that, you know, I, I go back a long time, 25 years doing this, and I would never stand on stage and tell my customers what the total cost of ownership is to the penny. Mm -hmm. But there, there you have Salesforce, it's $4.14. And, you know, interestingly enough, five years from now, it is going to be $5.30. It's going up. 
So basically what they're doing is saying that if you're a customer sitting in the in the audience, you know, if I have a hundred K deal with Salesforce, you know, I gotta be thinking to myself, I need four hundred and fourteen thousand dollars of extra money just to make this thing work. And it's going up, not down. It's going up to five dollars and thirty cents. So, you know, I better buy quick because it's getting worse, not not better. And I'm thinking as a as a partner now, tell me again about those 17 tech services you know, list them out for me, list out what the margin opportunity is. And I know that every time a customer is thinking CRM, for example, why would I get involved in the 100K at 10 or 20% margin, depending where I am in the Salesforce program? They highly dissuade partners now, just in the last 18 months from actually doing the transaction. It's actually tough to do in that environment now. And what they're trying to tell you is go, go after that 400k downstream and try to get as much of it as you can you know at, at high margin and the same goes for the isvs that you know the six or seven thousand of them sit that sit on the app exchange the customer is going to buy six other things from a software perspective on top of salesforce so you need to be with us but there's no reason that anyone you know needs to do that transaction it just doesn't make sense the app exchange is the right place and 73 percent of our customers agree so when I was doing marketing work with Lotus about 20 years ago, both before and after they were acquired by IBM, they were actually using the number with their partners that there was $8 of revenue on the services side to every software license dollar. And there were many partners who would give away the licenses to get those $8 of services. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, back in the Lotus Notes days and, and everything else. And this is back to the client server. And this is why the cloud, for a couple of reasons, but I mean, the, you know, the cloud became the next phase because of some of those big TCO. At the same time, I was with IBM and then Lenovo. Um, so TCO was something we never talked about. But buying the PC for 500 bucks or $1,000 was the, the beginning of your problems. Downstream, there was all kinds of opportunity. And this is how the channel flourished over the last 20 or so years. And they became a 600,000 company force around the world is on the back of that TCO. The opportunity still exists, but it's slightly different than, than it has been in the past. And like you said, it might only be half the opportunity that it could have been 20 years ago. Right. It's a very different calculation when it's on premise or when it's in the cloud. And obviously, all the tools for integration and everything else have become much faster and much easier uh, to use. So it's not as complex or it's not as difficult. It doesn't take as much time, whether it's the company itself or the partner doing it, to, to do those sorts of integrations and supports. You've listed 90 competencies that a channel program needs to have from partner compensation to account-based marketing to software and tools and 87 others. So if a channel leader wanted to focus on getting the most bang for their buck, are there some of those 90 that are especially strategic or critical that the best channel programs get right? Yeah. And if you kind of look into the 90, I have them categorized in six different areas. So as a, as a leader of a channel, or if you're in a small software company and you're doing this in your spare time, you've got to basically focus in six areas. You know, One is your go-to-market, route-to-market strategy and design. How is your organization going to work with indirect channels? What's, what's the culture going to be like? How are you going to do the coverage mapping and capacity planning and 
that piece always comes up front. But once you get to the point where you can start to define what your ideal partner profile looks like, which kind of maps to your ideal customer profile, you start to look at then how do I find these type of partners around the world? Again, not only the 600,000, but you've got millions of companies flooding in what I call shadow channels. How do you recruit them, onboard them, educate, train, and certify them? How do you enable them and then develop them? Obviously, incent, motivate, and drive loyalty. The most important thing is how do you co-sell and co-market with this new set of capabilities? How do you amplify your brand? How do you get to more places and have more conversations with customers than you've ever had in the past? And then in the end, how do you manage, measure, and report all that, which is the technology underpinning to it? But if you think broadly across those six categories, uh, you don't have to check 90 boxes. You just have to have a partner journey mapped out. And in each of those areas, you know, you got to find them and you got to educate them enough to be dangerous and incent them enough to not want to sell your competition over you. You want to give them the tools and the, and the love to be able to find new customers and to build their company and build their brand. And in the end, be able to make sure that this is the right motion for your company from an affordability perspective, ROI perspective. Well, you were uh, saying how critical the sales and marketing part of those six major categories is. You've also written about, and and everybody that I've already interviewed on the podcast has agreed that there's a real marketing skills gap among partners, especially among the small and mid-sized ones. And, And this isn't partner marketing. This is fundamental marketing knowledge. Is it the role of vendors to help address that marketing skills gap? How, how can they do that? Uh, it's two ways. I mean, it's the partners themselves that have to realize this on, on their own. But it's, yes, the vendors need to obviously help in, in those cases. And this is something we study, that 66% of all partners are in the category of do it for me or do it on behalf of me. In other words, they don't have the time. They don't have the resources. They don't have the money whatever it is, the skills, they don't have the necessary abilities to go and effectively market themselves. So yeah, in 66% of the cases, I think vendors need to to step up. Uh, What I'm calling this is the third stage. And one of the reasons I think that partners haven't lifted their game, because for so long, they've, they've worked on a referral type business. There's been enough business and we're now in a $5 trillion IT market around the world, there's been enough business to go around and you didn't have to be a good marketer. Kind of like if you're a plumber or an HVAC professional and stuff, it's just enough business and you can pay your mortgage and you never really had to figure out Google or, or social or, or email campaigns or syndicated content or inbound marketing. I mean, that's all stuff that you didn't need to, to make it in your business. And to make it, I mean, just like paying your mortgage, not growing to be a multinational corporation, but what I call the third stage is 20 years ago, every company around the world in every industry really locked down from a sales perspective around CRM and sales automation, Salesforce automation, locked down the sales mechanism, the direct sales mechanism. And you know, before that, you would have VPs of sales that did it all with their gut. And you know, you'd hear people say, you got to be born to be a salesperson. You don't hear that anymore. Everything's done to the seventh decimal point. It is a science. Well, 10 years later and 10 years ago, 
you had marketing automation do the same thing for marketers. Before that, you used to hear things like, wow, 50% of my marketing dollars are wasted. I just don't know what 50%. People spending way more, more time on branding than they should have. Well, marketing automation changed that, gave the levers and dials where now the VP of marketing or the CMO is in the boardroom at the seventh, less, seventh decimal point of accuracy, asking for investment, showing the power of marketing. So that's now 20 years that basically every company has been investing in direct sales and marketing, which represents about 25% of world trade. We think that now in 2019, people are waking up to this third stage, which is the last mile to your customer, which is this through channel marketing automation, you know, marketing to, through, and with partners at every stage of the customer journey. Again, that first 68% through the transaction, and then obviously long-term for renewal and uh, retention. And that third stage, I think, kicks off now. I publish a channel software tech stack that has 106 companies that build channel software. And I get a lot of calls now from venture capitalists, private equity, Wall Street, asking me who the, who the Marketo is, who the Eloqua is on my 106 logo chart, you know, trying to figure out this third stage. And, and where the money is to be made. Yeah, I was very interested in that graphic because you you may have seen Scott Brinker's marketing technology super graphic that he's been putting out for the last, I guess, seven or eight years on uh, marketing technology companies in over 40 categories. And there's over 7,000 companies on that. It, it finally got close to leveling off this year. It had been growing very rapidly over the last five years, almost doubling every year. So the 106, considering how, what a huge part of the economy the channel is, 106 seemed low to me. And you wrote a couple of years ago, the channel's in need of advanced and integrated purpose-built tools based on the latest technologies such as cloud mobility, social, predictive analytics, and big data. And you even founded a channel tech company. Is indirect underserved on the software side? Are there, are there gaps that, that haven't been addressed yet, both in terms of actual software or, or the quality of the software? Yeah, I think there, there, there's some huge gaps uh, in, in terms of serving. One is that almost 80% of channel programs, and this is in every industry, finance, insurance, pharma, tech, manufacturing, about 80% of channel organizations are siloed. They sit off on their own, and whoever runs that organization has finance, operations, sales, marketing, people underneath them. So it's kind of like a mini organization in itself, and it's been quite insulated. You know, you look at traditional marketing and, and CMOs and VPs of marketing, they, they know very little about the channel organization because in most companies they've worked for, it's been off on the side. And it's really been kind of a go-to-market, fulfillment, supply chain kind of organization that really wasn't brought into the sales, marketing, customer experience, customer success. Like it's very few times it's been brought under the CRO, which is an embarrassment. And this is what this third stage will change. It will break down the silo. The channel chief has to report to the CRO. The channel chief has to be in the boardroom. You know, representing you know seventy five percent of the company's revenue, they have to be able to manage their business to the seventh decimal point. When the CFO is offering up 
let's say a million dollars of investment and you got the sales marketing leaders there aggressively competing for that investment, in most cases, the channel is actually the better investment for that million dollars. It's just the channel chief is viewed, first of all, as buried three or four levels deep in the organization, viewed as somebody that's off in the Caribbean drinking with their partners, and just viewed as somebody that doesn't have the answer to where they'd spend the million dollars and what the exact return would be. So I think the CFO would expect or would actually welcome a lower response to that investment, but one that's more predictable. And that's where the software has to step up is that there's so many moving parts. And the the problem is a channel is time delayed. You know, you might have to go through multi-tiers of distribution and wholesale and then through a channel. And then at some point of the transaction, it's not as clean as measuring direct sales and marketing is today, but it doesn't mean it can't be done. And the amount of data is massive in all of these different aspects. So when I was at Lenovo, for example, we had 50 different sources of data around our partners and around our customers and bringing all 50 of those pieces together, get a 360 degree view of it was critical. And to be able to compete at the boardroom level and to get recognition within an organization, the technology and the ability to deploy technology by these channel leaders, everyone needs to step up. Yeah, well, often the cost of sale is much lower through the channel than it is direct. You know, when I look at all those 90 competencies in those six different areas that you've talked about, running a channel program is really like running an enterprise within an enterprise. You know, you've got the whole everything from go to market to sales to marketing, customer experience and everything right in there. And so it, in, in the biggest, the most sophisticated channel programs, it really does. It is critical and it's a real enterprise within an enterprise. You know, back to that question of the need for more or better channel technology. In, a, in another episode recently, I talked to Cheryl Worf from Microfocus. And they just rolled out a, a big global update update to their global partner program with the new partner portal. And, and they had to kind of uh, develop it themselves because they needed it customized. And I've, I've talked to people at other enterprises who have said that they, when looking for channel technology for an enterprise, that they, didn't, they found it hard to find enterprise-ready uh, solutions. Yeah, I don't know if I would go, you know, that far. You've got, you know, major players like Salesforce and, and Oracle and IBM that build partner technology. You've obviously got some leaders, and it's highly dependent on the industry. If you look at tech and manufacturing as an industry, you've got, you know, three or four big leaders in that space that that have pretty impressive horizontal platforms. Uh, the fact of the matter, though, is if we go back to our early conversation on software. This software takes $4.14 as well to get it working and to get it really adding a lot of value. And I'll say that the the channel has been this redheaded stepchild inside the organization. It doesn't get a lot of investment in terms of dollars, whether, you know, today the CMO spends more on technology than the CIO. And in this third stage, you know, it's really the channel leader needs to rival the CMO who's buying those 7,000 pieces of software on Scott's chart. Uh, Scott actually wrote a nice three-page blog on the channel software tech stack as well. So he liked the fact that all these other tech stacks are starting to 
you know, layer in as well. And he obviously understands the power of the channel and indirect sales. So he'd be a great future guest for you. Um, yeah, I, I actually know uh, Scott. We're both in Boston. I've written a guest blog for his a guest post for his blog, and he's spoken at an organization I lead. So, uh, yeah, I should talk to him about that. So what about partner experience? We talk a lot about customer experience, but what are the best companies doing around partner experience? Yeah, this has probably been one of the biggest changes. And now every week, if you follow the 54 channel magazines that are out there, you start to see vendors announcing ecosystems. And what that means is, you know, for 37 years, we've had these gold, silver, bronze pyramid schemes, precious metal programs. And I'm not sure, unless you're a true reseller and coming in as bronze, selling more, becoming silver, selling more, becoming gold, that's just an artifact of the way things used to be, probably in client server when you're, you're selling a lot of stuff. Today, everything anchors around the customer and it should. And that's how other parts of the organization is everything anchors around the customer. And the fact that the partner organization hasn't yet got to that uh, is a little bit of an embarrassment and another big driver of the third stage. And so what that means is there are partners out there that are today in your long tail because they don't fit in your gold, silver, bronze, because they're just not into that real business model. But if you you know, look at it more celestial, the stars out there are the customer and the planets rotating around it are all the different kinds of partners. You know, it's not just traditional partners anymore, but there's shadow channels, there's non-traditional partners. If you're in the tech space, for example, every company in every industry is becoming a tech company and they're coming in. These are accountants and they're architects and they're legal companies and they're digital agencies. There's all kinds of new types of firms that are rotating around that customer. And if you build your program that is anchored on those stars, anchored into this celestial view, which is to dedicate all of these different, your content, your messaging, your support for partners, the drive of their partner experience around the customer, you're going to find that you don't have a long tail of partners you have a, part, a set of partners today that are just not that into you. So what we you know, tell vendors is that they have to understand their partner's business model, but then there's five vectors that they have to understand underneath that. One is who they specialize in terms of the buyer. Again, 65% of decisions are outside of IT now. Which line of business executive you know, do they specialize in? Second, it's not a vertical play anymore. 10 years ago, we used to build these partner programs that tried to get you to go after a, one of the 27 verticals. Go read healthcare, high-tech, HIPAA, and become a healthcare expert. Today, it's a sub-industry play. There's 297 sub-industries below those 27 majors. And instead of just being a healthcare expert, be a mid-sized clinic with 50 doctors specialists. Third is geographic, obviously, which region of the country, which region of the world, which country, you know, where is your focus? Fourth is the sector size and segment of the customer. You know, a mid-sized clinic with 50 doctors is very different than a large dentist office or a small hospital. And the customer expects that level of expertise on your resume. And then fifth, what used to be maybe 10 levels of a tech stack today is 40. And you have to understand where your partners play 
and the different levels of the tech stack that they play in. When I mentioned you know, security and compliance and continuity and all these different layers, you have to understand where they play. So if you understand how your partner makes money and then understand those five vectors, you'll then be able to plot them successfully out in the constellation where they belong. And if you start to build your program around supporting them and those things, you're going to find that, you know, there is no long tail anymore. You've got all these partners now recognized in the right place in the right area of their business. Well, it sounds like the shadow channel is much more complex and challenging for vendors to produce results from. Well, I, think, I think you've said it requires much more flexibility and customization from the channel managers. It definitely does. So, you know, when I mentioned Microsoft bringing on 7,500 partners a month and 80% of those non-transacting, you know, it's now up to the channel managers at Microsoft to make sure that that partner has the ability to join that appropriate part of the ecosystem, gets wrapped around the right customer opportunities. And, you know, whether somebody goes to the Microsoft partner locator and types in that, you know, I'm a head of marketing at a mid-sized ambulatory care clinic in upstate New York, and I'm going to get fired next week if I don't bring in more patients. That should not just default to Larry in the white van who lives two miles away from that clinic. It's got to default to the people. And I'm going to say five different partners, perhaps, that have that on their resume. That's what they do for a living. And now Microsoft can bring that group of people. It's not partner to partner anymore. It's partner to partner to partner to partner to partner. You know, it's five different <laughs> partners that they're mm-hmm. going to bring to the table to say, here are the people that will stop you from getting fired. Here's the last three they've worked on with us. And here's their results. And you're going to be very, very happy with what the seven layer stack, the seven layers of the cake that they're going to bring in and solve your problem with. And you're going to be happy to pay them $4.14 or whatever the number is at Microsoft. You're going to be happy to pay them because you're driving in more patients, because you don't get fired, and you know because that they're going to be there for the long term, tweaking your environment to, uh, to be the best in class mid-sized clinic. Yeah. So you were talking about the decline of the IT in terms of the decision making, although um, I guess they're still involved in something like 71%. You know, usually in businesses, it's a buying team. There's line of business people, there's IT people, there's CFOs, there's end users. There's lots of people involved, which can make the, the purchase of technology a very complex sale from the part of the vendors or the, or the part of the partners. So with this shadow channel, are they different parts of that shadow channel influencing different parts of that buying team? Absolutely. And, you know, the average buying team today is, you know, 5.5 people. Where that 71% stat comes from is think of two kinds of buyers today. If you're, if you're thinking in the technology world, there's an infrastructure buyer and they may go by the title of CIO, CTO, CDO, CISO kind of titles. And they're buying a lot of the hardware, software, and services to run the organization, to run the network, to run the security, things like that. It's a critical part of obviously thousands and thousands and thousands of vendors. But there's now this non-infrastructure buyer, which is spending 65% of tech dollars. It's the head of marketing, sales, operations, finance, HR, all the way down the list. And they're spending the majority of the money today and understanding what that buying group looks like. 
In that group, by the way, 29% of the time, they avoid IT because they don't want the due diligence. They don't want the, the time delay. They don't want the oversight, whatever it is. But in a third of cases, they're off doing it really in a shadow IT rogue world. And that number's growing because they have to move fast. Again, I'm getting fired next Thursday. I don't have the time for a two-year IT project and a procurement-involved RFP. Sure. 68% of my time researching my problem. 58% of the time, I'm going to actually hire my own channels. I'm not going to ask who IT uses. I'm not going to ask who's actually allowed in You know, from a governance perspective. I'm just going to go bring people in the door. On average, five different firms. And I'm going to go solve this problem by next Thursday. And guess what? I'm taking ownership of this because this is my transformation. Yeah. I mean, the, in, in my experience where IT usually gets involved, where they're the gatekeeper is they have access to the crown jewels of the company, the, the enterprise data. And if what you're doing needs to integrate with other systems, that's an area where they're going to get involved also. If you've got a standalone solution just for a department, then you may be able to avoid them. Yeah. And what ends up happening is all these departments have gone rogue and got all their own stuff plugged in. You know, I, th- I think I read the average mid-market SMB organization has hundreds of SaaS, organize- SaaS tools now running in their organization. It's back over to the IT and, and some of those C-level executives that I mentioned to actually start stitching everything together, doing the integrations and the implementations so that the company can take advantage of this level of data and then perhaps start using some AI, machine learning, predictive, prescriptive, and, and pull together the security story and the continuity story. And, you know, it's, it's gone a little nuts now for 20 years. It's their job to pull it back in. Yeah, and I've heard that from companies where they don't know what they have, and they may have five different implementations of the same software in different departments and things like that going on. So let, let me ask you about one other area, and then, you know, this has been great, and I could talk to you for hours, but I know you have a job to do. The area of low-code and no-code software, and that's been growing in the last several years. Do you see that as an opportunity for partners? Because even though it's low-code, no-code, often companies, it seems, don't have either the time or the skills or the people assigned to it. And, and so to make more advanced applications, they still need a partner or they still need someone to work with them on it. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up because for me, it's actually the number one recommendation. If I'm one of the 600,000 traditional partners, you need to codify your IP. So the workflows and the value that you've added for years and years and years to customers, you need to figure out a way, and this is a no-code, low-code environment, you have no way of going to hire a bunch of DevOps people and data scientists. You just you, you don't have access to that talent pool, uh, nor do you have the skills to start a software company. But in the new world where marketplaces and Forrester's predicting that 17% of all B2B transactions in five years, and that's beyond tech, that's paper clips and forklifts and everything goes through marketplaces and online commerce. And that's huge. That's trillions of dollars. Amazon for Business and Alibaba and all of these major marketplaces like the App Exchange and Microsoft and AWS and everyone is going to play in that 17%. But to get noticed in that marketplace type of idea, you know, you can be one of the millions of consultants and service companies 
that are listed on there. Very hard to differentiate yourself. But if you use these no-code, low-code tools, and for example, in Salesforce, go build some lightning bolts, that you are layer seven of that solution at that mid-sized clinic. You're the last mile that glues all the other six layers together with some of your unique workflows and logic. You're now showing up as a product, much easier to be found on Google, much easier to be found on a marketplace, and much easier to get a lead in terms of every mid-sized clinic in the world. So when I say that RPA is an example of an industry, is the fastest growing channel on the planet. And UiPath, which is one of the larger companies there, grew 5,614% last year. Just out of interest, the fastest growing soft enterprise software company in history used to be Microsoft. It got replaced by Salesforce. It then got supplemented by Slack. And guess what? UiPath is now the fastest growing enterprise company in history. It's an RPA company. It's workflows, it's no code, low code, and it's a place where partners should be diving headfirst into in terms of building out their brand, building themselves into an ISV, and getting access to the future buyer. It's, there's nothing more critical in my mind than that. Okay, so what should I have asked you that I didn't? You know, what, what's keeping channel organizations up at night, the leaders of channel organizations up at night that you talk to? Well, there's a few things, you know, if you hone in on this third stage, you know, you've got to get as a vendor organization, you've got to get yourself into the boardroom, getting into the competition for investment. So you've got to build the people processes and technology that allow you to have that level of accuracy, that level of trust built with the CFO and the CEO and the board to get and compete. That's first and foremost. It's hard because Every day you're doing 90 different things, you're putting out fires, and in the end, you do have to kind of drink with your partners to keep that relationship going. So it's one of the hardest jobs in the organization today. To do that plus get that recognition is tough. The second thing is you've got to get almost fanatical, obsessed with that 68% of your customer journey. And what you're going to find is going to shock you. What they read, where they go, and the people they follow during that first 68% are likely not your partners today. Because your traditional partners, probably 80 or 90% of them are struggling to not only get in front of that buyer, but to get earlier on in that cycle, which we talked about this, the digital capabilities of doing that. It's not a face-to-face -face game here. It, it's a digital capabilities. You've got to be on page one of Google to, to do that. And your partners just aren't there. So a vendor has to get obsessed about that 68%. And when a customer gets to the point of vendor selection without ever talking to you or talking to one of your partners, that should scare the heck out of every company from very small SaaS companies right up to the largest of large Fortune 50 technology vendors. You know, once you get obsessed on the 68%, everything changes. Your partner program changes. You start to move into an ecosystem view instead of a tiered program. And you start to welcome in these new kind of shadow channels and you start growing your own program, probably by 10x of what it is today, to make sure that you've got the relationships and those alliances built for those people that are impacting your customer. Yeah, and that's what I often talk with uh, companies about in terms of why they need to put more emphasis on marketing, because it's in many cases 
you know, marketing that's going to get them noticed in that first 68% of the customer journey. Yeah. And, and keep in mind that during that stage, Google and Facebook and other digital uh, platforms favor the local business. So they'll always put Larry in the white van higher on Google for a cheaper per click price than anyone else. So if you're thinking you're going to do this on your own and get on page one of Google through the millions of customer conversations, you're just not. But if you elevate all of your partners and many of these new partners to, uh, to get that content, you're going to win the geographic, local, distributed marketing game. And I think that's going to be one of the key things going forward in this next third stage over the next 10 years. The vendors who win are going to be the vendors who win this distributed marketing through channel marketing automation game. Okay, Jay. So how this has been great. How can people contact you? Uh, I'm all over. So I'm uh, on, on Twitter at Jay McBain. You can hit me on LinkedIn. Contact me via email, jmcbain at forrester.com. I, I handle a lot of inbound traffic and happy to help anyone with their, uh, with their program and offer up some uh, advice on how to uh, take advantage of the next decade. Well, you were certainly very accessible to me. And you know, as soon as I suggested doing this, you said, let's set it up. And I'm glad that we did. So thank you for joining uh, us today, Jay. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or another app, and you found this conversation with Jay as interesting and useful as I did, please leave a review. That will help other people learn about it too. And thank you for listening to the Software Channel Partner Podcast, and please subscribe and listen to future episodes.